This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome back to the third series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. One of the most important figures in the recent history of the Royal Court is the playwright Stephen Jeffries, who for 15 years worked as the literary associate here throughout the 90s and the start of this century. He was the mentor to a generation of playwrights, including myself, and the champion and agitator to his artistic directors, Stephen Doldry and Ian Rickson. He was also one of the most searing readers of new plays I've met. He tells the story of one script meeting here at the theatre. Stephen Doldry was struggling to find plays to programme, while there was an increasing sense that a generation of writers like Sarah Kane, Joe Pennell and Rebecca Pritchard were energising the form, Doldry needed a play for the theatre downstairs. Stephen Jeffries walked into the weekly script meeting one Friday morning with a script in his hand. He declared that he had found it. The play that would run in the theatre downstairs for the summer, a guaranteed hit. The first time a debut play would play in the theatre downstairs for a generation. The play, Mojo, was written by a young writer called Jez Butterworth and Stephen Jeffrey's brilliance as a reader was proven. Mojo, a play set in a 50s Soho of violence and sex and rock and roll, was a massive success. At a time when many theatres were closing for the summer, the Royal Court had a hit on their hands, and directed by Ian Rickson, the court had in Butterworth an arresting and brilliant new voice. The qualities that astonished and sparkled in Mojo, a linguistic verve and audacity of observation that crackled in tension with a dramaturgical assurance have defined Butterworth's plays. After a seven-year break from playwriting in which he established himself as a screenwriter of note in the US and the UK alike, he returned to the Royal Court in 2002 with the brilliant Night Heron. 2005's The Winterling also debuted at the court. In 2008, his haunting parlour song opened at the Atlantic Theatre in New York, and in 2009 it was given the European premiere at the Almeida. All of the plays were directed by Ian Rickson, but it was the play he opened at the court that summer that arrived like a thunderbolt into the heart of English playwriting. Jerusalem was a vibrant dramatisation of the defiant last stand against rural, petty officialdom of alcoholic, drug-addled poet, charmer, mystic and myth-maker Johnny Rooster Byron. It starred Mark Rylance in a multi-award-winning performance that articulated the verve and honesty, brutality, wit and sadness of Butterworth's play with humanity and directness. It played for a year in the West End and was a soaring success on Broadway. I loved the unnerving arrest of his next play, The River, in 2012 and was left reeling by 2017's The Ferryman. A play that was ostensibly an interrogation of the Northern Irish troubles of the early 80s was to me more a play about commitment. Commitment not only to an ideological organisation but to a marriage or a family and the political and psycho-spiritual obstructions that dog that commitment at all turns. For all its epic scope and hinterland of magic, The Ferryman was for me an astonishing play of breadth and ferocity about a man trying to be good. Jez Butterworth hasn't written prolifically for theatre. In fact, he's written seven stage plays in nearly 25 years, but four of those plays have played sellout runs in medium-scale theatres on both sides of the Atlantic, and three of them have been, arguably, the defining plays of their decade. 
Jez Butterworth. Welcome to the Royal Court. That was fantastic. I can go now. <laughs> That's what I came for. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what we like to provide you with, man. <laughs> the, um, I always start, you, you, you said before we started that you've not listened to these podcasts, but I always start with the same question, and I was mulling whether I was going to start the same question in Series 3, and have decided that I am. <laughs> which, Great. Which is the first question I want to ask you. Is What was the, what was the first time you went to the theatre? The first time I went, to, not like pan, not like school pants. No, it can be school okay, pants. So whatever, was, whatever that answer is. It was the Dick Whittington in Hendon. The the coach we went in was leaking, and it was raining the whole way there. And my main memory of it is sitting there like I jumped in a cold swimming pool uh, for the entire thing. But I got so into it and so uh, excited by it. I must have been about eight or nine, I suppose. And uh, I can still remember it, and I can still remember the sort of feeling of being soggy but entranced. <laughs> soggy but entranced is a beautiful state to watch any theatre in, I think. That's really lovely. Where, where did you go to school? I went to school, first of all, in um, South East London. Right. I went to a school in Abbey Wood. And then when I was about six or seven, my parents moved to Chiswell Green near um, Garston, near St Albans. And I oh, went right. to uh, okay. a local... Uh, a local junior school, and then I went to a comprehensive school in St Albans. Okay. The, um, and what I know of St Albans, which is not an area of the country I know brilliantly well, it's kind of a, a rather gentle, quite nice suburb of London kind of commuter belt thing, yeah? Yeah, and like all of those places, it's really dangerous, you know? <laughs> partic- particularly at, you know, at night on a Friday night when yeah. everything shuts, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, was, it was kind of a, a, a lo- lovely and beautiful and Roman during the day and then kind of just like rollerball at night. The, uh, my memories of growing up in Stockport were very much the same. Mm. I always say that, you know, I, I, I've been out at night in Sao Paulo and New York yeah. and LA and London. It's never felt as dangerous as being out at night in Stockport. I think that's right. I mean, it's just that they're just like, you knew where to go to, you know, people would meet up in, in alleys for, for, for punch-ups because there was nothing else to do. And there would just be like a schedule. You could go like, which one should we go to? You know, we've, we've got X versus Y down by the clock tower or up the outside the Adelaide. There's going to be... <laughs> it was everybody knew there was nothing else to do. The, um, uh, we were talking because, you know, we've, we've had a conversation before this starts. Listeners will not be astonished that we talk to one another before it starts. And we're talking about our children going to school. And yeah. you said something about your experience at school not being a brilliantly happy one. No, I didn't madly enjoy school. In fact, I think I sat through about 95% of it quite literally waiting for each lesson to end. I couldn't right. bear it. I was so incredibly bored and it was relentless. The, t- the things I enjoyed at school were playing cricket, yeah. uh, but mostly the creative writing element of the English language course okay. and the one drama class we had yeah. a week that lasted yeah. for 40 minutes. The, was that where you started to write at school? Was it? School? I started to write like little essays, you know, because they make you write creative writing essays when yeah. you're... And, I, and unlike, I think, <laughs> everyone else in the class, I was desperate for mine to be read out. <laughs> and people found it funny. But uh, there was, right. after, a, after a while... You could see that even the kids who, who you know, would, would would really not be into that kind of thing were actually starting to listen to the, <laughs> starting to listen to the stories. It was my first like reviews, I suppose. <laughs> the um, writing in a town like that, mm. um, in my, 
you know, listening to you talk about this school, it evokes very clearly memories of my own similar experience at the school. Mine was an all-boys school. I don't know if you had girls. Yeah, ours was an all-boys school. Yeah, it's really rubbish, isn't it? Yeah. It's like it the worst been, of both it worlds. Been a, it's, it was the worst of everything because it had been like a grammar school up it's until exactly like five years before. Yeah. So you still had these guys walking around in capes. Yes, exactly at mine as, as well. the school sort of progressively <laughs> went. You know. And it, all, they, all they carried was the cape and the brutality of that's the 60s exactly grammar right. schools. Exactly right. And, and also a slightly confused look on their face as to you know, why more and more of the kids in their class are Bangladeshi. You know, and just really, really confused. You could, you could see it. Just some of them had been there since the thirties. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the uh, and there was always the thing of teachers who taught kids' parents. Yes, you, know, you kind of get into. I taught your father. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of slightly chilling. But in that environment, my school, uh, writing, reading. Although an escape to that was one which one had to be fairly kind of like circumspect about. Was it was it similar for you? Did you t- did people well, you say people had started to enjoy your writing? Yeah, but it was just little. You know, it was like write an essay about a time I was afraid, or you know, right. <laughs> something like or, or yeah. you know, yeah, it was stuff like that. And yeah. and so there was never any like like there was never any drama writing. There was no no right. go and write a play and come back. That didn't happen yeah. until I went to uh, until I went to university. What what kind of what other culture were you engaging with as a teenager? What were you, were you listening to music? You watching yeah. movies? What what was yeah. your thing? It was um, well, I was I was really into music from a very early age. Uh, I had older brothers, and right. one of my older brothers, Tom, he had a friend who had an older brother as well, which meant that you had access to like records yeah, great. that were people were listening to who were 17 or 18 years old when you were 10 years old because yeah. they'd get lent to Tom and mm-hmm. then Tom would bring them into our bedroom. So he'd be listening to stuff that was just frankly like completely out of your, your bandwidth. What do you remember listening to? Uh, one summer we borrowed Chris Audley's record collection and it contained like... 10 Captain Beefheart albums oh, and like no. loads of Frank Zappa and everything by Neil Young and, and everything by Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. And, and so suddenly, all that summer, and I must have been 10 or 11 years old, right? Uh, that was all we were listening to. And by the end of the summer, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd gone over and over and over everything. There's, uh, the smallness of places like Stockport or St Albans is accentuated when you spend the summer listening to Beefheart and Neil Young. I think so, and, mm. and I think that, that, that you know, to have grown up in a time where access to those things was chance like that, yeah. rather than Spotify, yeah, you know, had its own uh, uh, magic once you encountered it. It really did feel like you dug up treasure on the beach. Yeah. The, um, you went to university. I went to university. Where did yeah. you go? I went to Cambridge University, and I went to Cambridge University uh, because of of uh, one thing, which was uh, translations by Brian Friel. Uh, my brother Tom had gone to Cambridge before, so not many people went to Cambridge out of our school. I think Tom was the first for a long yeah. time, and uh, I'd given up school. I'd I'd, I'd uh, I'd not done very well. I was the last year of O-levels, and I'd not done well in my O-levels. Right. And so uh, I'd given up. Um, and I went to I went to visit Tom at Cambridge, and he was in a production of uh, of translations. Wow. And it was it was just wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was like a small student production in a very small th- black box theatre. Yeah. And 1985, and I still I still remember it. Like it was yesterday, 
I can remember everything about it. And also when you went in, it was like they had they had real music playing and it was all lit by candles and wow. they were burning turf in the room. And I just walked in and this play just absolutely gripped me. And then afterwards, it was the Saturday night, it was the last night, afterwards there was this big party to which I was invited. <laughs> and by the end of the end of the party, I knew what I wanted to do uh, you know, next, which was I wanted to I didn't know anywhere else that where, where you could put on your own plays with your friends without without teachers involved. Right. And I hadn't encountered any other little theatre or anything. I had nothing to do with anything. Right. And so I, I went home and I um, spoke to one of my teachers who who had liked my writing and I said I want to go to Cambridge University and I want to, but I don't want to. I said to him I don't want to go to study. I want to go to 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 like put on plays. He said don't tell them that. <laughs> Uh, so I ended, ended up getting an interview, and I said in the, they said in the interview, well, you haven't got the grades to uh, O level to get in. And I, and I said to the, t the 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 English director of English studies, who's still there, uh, I said to him, well, just just make me an offer that you think I won't get, and then who's who who loses out here? If I get it, I got it, and if I don't, <laughs> that's that. And he sat there with a sort of look on his face like, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Why doesn't everyone come in and say that? Because it's fair enough, right? Yeah. They should make offers to everyone. But it's an amazing... But, 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 you know, I went for an interview at Oxford mm. and was totally cowed by the architecture and the environment. Right. And, and so I would never have had the confidence to have, to have been so kind of cocksure and say, all right, come on and bring it on. Well, you know, it was a kind of a cross between that and I remember on the day that I had to get my application and I didn't, I just thought, oh, fuck this. And then then suddenly the teacher, Don Jones, who yeah. was about to retire. This is your he, English teacher? My English who teacher. Taught you yeah, he must have been about 65. Yeah. He showed up at my doorstep and knocked on the door and I was there on my own just, you know, because <laughs> I wasn't going into school. I was doing it all at home. And he said, you know, it's got to be in today. And I was like, oh, I've changed my mind. He was like, Paul's have you? And we sat there at my kitchen table and he filled out the form with me. And he, I know after the fact that he lied through his teeth <laughs> about how like diligent I was and how attentive I was and everything. Because I think he was literally about to retire. Yeah. And he just thought, oh, you know, well, I'll, uh, I, think, I, I think he just really wanted me to go there. And um, a beautiful man. So yeah, he was wonderful, and yeah. we, we stayed in touch for a while. And he's, uh, I owed it all to him. I remember there's a little box on the blue form, and it says, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" Kind of yeah. thing. And I was going to put something sensible like law or whatever. He says, yeah. "No, what do you want to be?" I said, "I want to be a writer." So he said, "Well, put it." So I put it in, and it was the first question they asked me. They said, "You know, you said you wanted to be a writer. What do you mean?" And I told them. Did you tell them about translations? Yeah. And, yeah. I did, but I played it down how much I wanted. <laughs> so that was the only reason I wanted to be there. But I was good to my way. When I got in, I did only do that. Yeah. What was it like? What was it like being there and doing that? It thing? was the most wonderful experience because I didn't have anything to do with the academic side of the university. I went to one lecture in three right. years. And right. I was midway through my second year. And my tutor at the time, they were going to throw me out. They were yeah. properly going to sling me. And my tutor was Tom Morris. Uh, you know who directed uh, War Horse or co-directed War Horse? Right, Tom Morris of of, of Bristol, Bristol Old Vic Vic. Artists, so, director. So yeah. he was my like um, uh, tutor at the time, and you know he's a really big lad. And yeah. I remember him once chasing me across <laughs> three courts of St John's for an essay, 
I was absolutely pushing it as hard as I got, and he just physics was against me. He just intellectually just like gained on me, grabbed me as we got to the bridge of size, and he was like, "I'm going to make sure, make sure if you don't do this essay, I'm going to make sure they, uh, you know, they, they throw you out." Anyway, I, I he came to see one of my one of my little plays around right. about that time, and he told me this during an interview actually. Yeah. Uh, he said that he thought there was something to it. It wasn't great, but there was something in it. There was enough in it so that he went to the university and he said, "If he's not doing any work, but he is working on other stuff. Like he's right. done this, that, and the other. Yeah. And it's not great, but but um, it's got something. And if you sling him out in 25 years, we might regret it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably going to come to nothing. But like, don't. Don't do it lightly. Don't throw them out lightly. So that was it. They just left me alone. Fantastic. I'm not exaggerating. They completely left me alone. I didn't do, wasn't doing the essays. I wasn't doing the tutorials. I was just doing plays. How many plays did you write? Do you, have you still got think, the plays as well? That's the other question well, I should the, ask. No, I haven't. Mm. I haven't got them. I think some of the people that were in them might might have right. them, but I haven't. All written on typewriter, presumably. They were written on an old typewriter yeah. that belonged to my dad that he used to write his articles for the Tribune. Right. And so. Wow. Yeah, it was that winding the ribbon around and everything but they were you know we went to the Edinburgh Festival about two or three times and yeah. and um, did all of that it was it was fantastic it was all you know it was all we did from morning until last thing at night fantastic what a beautiful way to spend a university and I, time. yeah and I was there you know the, the very first very first uh, audition that I, that I ever did the first person to walk in through the door was Rachel Vice. Uh, age 19 so I thought, oh, this is great I didn't cast her <laughs> did she remember did she remember yeah, that she now? will do yeah she I bet do. she will I didn't realise your dad was a writer what was he writing well he was he, my dad was a was a lorry driver um, he was born in 1924 mm. and he got a trade union scholarship after the war um, yeah he fought at D-Day he was, he was on Omaha Beach in the first wave Landing landing crafts like in the like in Saving Private Ryan, right. and after that he he drove lawyers for the carp and he got a trade union scholarship to Ruskin, in Oxford and became a lecturer in economics for the rest of his life and he he was very very he was he was he was extremely left wing and he wrote some articles for the Tribune that that every so often every few years he'd get out and show you right <laughs> <laughs> and was your did your mum write or was no my mum. Uh, isn't a writer. What? She's she's um, uh, uh, my mum trained to be a dentist, and then and then um, she had five kids, yeah. and after that she worked uh, as a receptionist in the surgery in St Albans, and has since uh, since retired. Yeah, the bro your brothers. I will. I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about your brothers. Uh, I'm going to talk about your brothers. Cool. <laughs> Is that all right? Um, because the, the your brothers were not only a major cultural influence on you, with the albums and the music, but uh, were writers, theatre makers, and you've written with, yeah. Yeah, I've written with Tom and with with John Henry, and one's older and the other one's um, seven years younger. John yeah. Henry's younger than me, and uh, yeah, it's I mean it's completely different, and it's it's makes it a lot more fun in lots of ways. Right. Um, a lot, a lot more enjoyable. Not supposed for it to be a shared endeavour. You know, when you finish something, and you finish it together, yeah. it's kind of just a yeah. lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that that moment, and yeah. it is for me a lot about about that moment of sort of finally 
having it all 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 done that's really why I feel sort of the, the pleasure it's 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 almost more than when it goes on right it's the the possibility of completion yeah, and that yeah, collaboration think, I think that's it and and it's fun to have that shared yeah that's it's, it's really beautiful the um some people find the experience of going to university deflecting you know they're deflected from those objectives that they went in but the, the ferocity of your objective is really compelling, and you kept it, yeah? You left university. Did you leave it and think, right, what do I do now? How do I carry on writing? Did you ever doubt that? The, the, the slightly embarrassing fact, truth, is that I, I, I sort of fell off a cliff um, after I left university. I'd set up, no, I've, I don't have a very clear view of the future right. to this day. Right. But I really didn't then. I didn't plan for anything. I didn't think, right, I'll make this contact or that contact. Yeah. I kind of just, we were doing plays on the on the, the Friday and on the Monday I was yeah. out of a job. And I was just at home living with my parents with yeah. no money and this entire sort of like dream that I'd been a part of for, for, for the previous three years had evaporated. So how did you cope with that? What did you do? got really depressed yeah. and I went and got a job. Right. Uh, I got a job working uh, for some advertising agency in Fitzrovia called right. McCann Erickson. Writing copy for them? Or? That's what I really hoped I would do right. and what I'm extremely glad I didn't do because <laughs> yeah. I'd probably yeah. still be doing it yeah. now because I probably would have been all right at it. Yeah. Uh, they, they put me in as an account manager and I lasted less than six months. And I made the... They often call advertising the nephew game. And I was there. I was there because my uncle, uh, <laughs> who was the only person in my family who had any money, uh, had an account uh, 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 with them. And so I got a job with them as the idiot nephew. Yeah. And I made the mistake of telling another nephew there <laughs> that I wasn't in this for the long run and I wanted to be a writer and I thought it was all bollocks but I didn't know that he was a nephew and, and so the next day uncle. he went and told his uncle <laughs> who happened to be running the company and oh, this guy no. said you know a little birdie tells me that you're not madly into this and I said that's absolute nonsense who, <laughs> who told you that I love this and I would die for McCann Erickson and, and, and he said um do you know what? I don't believe you, and you're. And I said I resigned. He said fired. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. It was like a photo finish. Right. The silence, and I was being all defiant. And he very carefully pointed out. He said, "If I fire you, you can claim unemployment benefit on Monday." <laughs> so I was like, "I'm fired." <laughs> See, this is London. Yeah, oh, St Albans. Yeah, in in in, in um, Howland Street in Fitzrovia. Right. Around the you Northern you, Northern were, you were living in St Albans, working in London. No, I was living in. I'd moved into uh, Islington, just right. off Highbury Fields, with uh, doing that classic thing where there's there's someone sleeping in the living room and there's yeah. someone sleeping in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was what the around. early nineties. It would have been nineteen ninety two. Yeah, end of ninety one. Yeah, and just and just continuing to write despite the. The kind of misery of of leaving the Cambridge. That's all right. Behind. I put yeah. on a play in at the Etc Theatre in Camden in April 1992, which was mm. only about six months after leaving, and was like rehearsing it at night, dressed in a suit and tie, and you know trying to keep the whole thing, trying to keep the whole scene alive. What was that play? Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it had quite an. It had. Stephen Mangan was in it, <laughs> and Paul Ritter was in it, and oh, and, and Paul Chahidi was in it. Oh my um, god! And what a cast! Yeah, it was. We had a lot of a lot of good, a lot of good actors in it. Yeah. 
because uh, that was the people who I graduated with. You know, I graduated with an extraordinarily yeah. sort of like talented and subsequently sort of fated group of people yeah. who we were just doing all the stuff with. You know, no wonder it was fun. Yeah, because it's really great people and doing it. Do it yeah, the um, uh, what was London like then for you coming out of St Albans, coming out of Cambridge? I imagine there's an energy to the place. Yeah, there was, and I, I was sort of, uh, I was, I got really obsessed with where everything was. I'd sit looking at maps, and if I went somewhere, you know, I'd, I'd get off, go back there on foot, and then look at the map and work out where I was. Yeah. Where everything was in relationship, for some reason, to the post office tower. I won't tell a therapist that, but what, <laughs> uh, that was about. But it was like, oh, I can see the post office, and, and like, yeah. and how, how, so where everything related to it. Yeah. So I've, I've sort of did a sort of semi version of the knowledge of going right. to London, and I loved living there. Yeah. It was a very, very mm. exciting place. Yeah. I remember thinking one day, because <laughs> I got paid nothing to do that job, and when I gave it up, I, I, I still had very little. And I remember thinking one day, if I had twenty pounds a day, I could like get through life. Like, just that's all I need. Yeah, it's all I need. Yeah, and uh, in some ways, I wish I'd stuck to that. The it's an intoxicating city for people who don't come here, and and the mysteries of wandering the streets mm. never fail to kind of yield something, you know, they're, they're always there. Yeah, I, I mean, to wandering the streets, I remember the very first TV commission that, that Tom and I got yeah. was for Carlton TV. It was like they were doing some shorts thing about things set on the underground. Right. And we got one of these, and it was like half an hour long. Yeah. And we sent it in, and they called us in to go and, and, uh, and see us. And we had to walk. We, we had to walk from, from Islington yeah. down to St. Martin's and back yeah. because we didn't have the Couldn't money the for, the, for the tube. Yeah. The, um, I, I want to talk about the writing of Mojo, but just before I do, um, you, you, you didn't write in other forms. You were writing plays. You write for television as well. We did one thing for, for, for TV right. and, and then... Um, simultaneously with writing Mojo we wrote something for Channel 4 and that was right. the last bit of TV I did for 20 years right but you weren't a songwriter or a poet or a novelist or short story no writer. none of those things right just writing drama yeah did you act at Cambridge as well I did yeah were you any good uh, <laughs> so I had a, um, a a range about an inch wide and if what I was called upon to do fell in that, then you stand smash back. It. <laughs> but anything outside of that, and it was a disaster. I remember doing it in, in 1993, going up to Edinburgh and doing a play just to get some extra money with other friends while I was doing my own right. play. And I got an agent out of it. I got an agent from ICM because it was within my corridor in of certainty. That's you know? so beautiful. And then they, they offered me a few parts in, that were outside of that and, and it quickly came to its natural conclusion. I always think a lot of the people a lot of the people listening to these podcasts are people who are starting to write or people who are stuck in those corners that mm. we've both definitely been stuck in where you can't get work yeah. on and you can't um, you nobody nobody will read nobody will read what you're doing. Um 
And then to stories like the success of Mojo being ostensibly your first play yeah. are massively dispiriting to all those people. Yeah, well, <laughs> and it's great that it wasn't the case. It's <laughs> absolutely not the case. I yeah. mean, to some, to, to the extent it's my first play, it's the first thing I wrote that felt like a play afterwards. You know, right. you looked at it and was like, that is actually a play. Yeah. So it is sort of like in that sense a first play, and in no other sense whatsoever. The rest was <laughs> pure marketing. When right. I got here to the <laughs> yeah. World Court, it's like, oh look, it's his first. Play, I'd yeah. written about twelve. Yeah, yeah, right. And some of them were fifteen minutes long. You know. Yeah, yeah, but they count, right? Yeah. Well, they did at the time. Yeah, sorry. yeah. I'd hold on to them, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember um, like the moment of? Uh, I well, tell me about how Mojo started from the writing point of view. So in nineteen ninety three. Uh, I did a. I got asked to do a TV project for I think Channel Four right. with Malcolm McLaren. He'd done a thing right. called The Ghosts of Oxford Street, which I saw. There you go. Happy was, Mondays, dancing around right. Marble Arch. That's right. And, <laughs> and they, it, it went fairly well. So they asked him to do The Ghosts of Père Lachaise, which is a cemetery in in Paris. Right. And so, you know, we went out to Paris and we met with Malcolm. And in the week or two before Malcolm absconded with all of the production money back to Poland <laughs> uh, and the thing never happened right. uh, we were sitting in the bar weirdly enough of the Almeida and um, drinking red wine in the, like 3 o'clock in the afternoon as Malcolm mm. loved to do mm. and he started telling me this story about Soho in the 50s like 20 years before he'd, he'd they'd done Nevermind the Bollocks yeah. um, and just what it was like with Larry Parnes and all the, the crossover between like the, mm. the, the pop world and the and the crime world. He talked about it for about an hour. It was really fascinating. Mm. And he said, uh, you know, he said, you know, Jez, someone should someone should write about that. <laughs> <laughs> and about, so you did. About a yeah. year later, right. I met him around the corner from here in that pub down there. Yeah. And he'd just seen the uh, seen the seen the play. <laughs> And he looked at me, and he knew exactly what had happened. <laughs> and we both played this little game for like half an hour that that wasn't what had happened. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> as he was leaving, he said, "Jez, I really must learn to keep my fucking mouth shut." <laughs> <laughs> he would never have written it. Not in a million years. Yeah. He look. I, he said, "Someone should write about exactly. that." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, do you remember the process of writing it? Yeah, very clearly. What was what was it? So, I was living in London, as I say, yeah. and I decided to uh, move to the countryside mm -hmm. with my brother Tom. Mm -hmm. We'd got given a little bit of money to do a thing for Channel Four, yeah. it was just a hour long thing. Yeah, and so we had enough money to live by. We didn't have a car or anything. I borrowed my friend James Harding's and his sister's bikes for the year. Um, they got nicked the night I finished the play, by the way, <laughs> from outside the window. <laughs> I woke up, they'd gone. Um, oh. but, but, yeah, we moved to the countryside. We moved into a little flat in a place called Pusey. And um, I started writing the, the play on an old Olivetti oh. computer that my dad, I think, had nicked from work. Right. And um, so, and then I just started. I knew I, knew I wanted to write a... a proper play, mm -hmm. a play that had an interval yeah. uh, in it yeah, for a right. start, because I hadn't yeah. done anything that had an interval. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I came up with the, with the, with the rough story. Yeah. And I spent 
I remember we moved there June. I remember when dates were all the time for some reason. It was June the tenth, nineteen ninety four, when we moved there, mm-hmm. and I think it was about mid August when I stopped writing the first ten pages over and over, right, obsessively. Yeah, it was like that thing in The Shining where yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. right the same yeah. you know and I would come back to it and I'd come back to it and I was trying to find like a tone and a voice and also too afraid to just plow on through this this process that I knew absolutely nothing about yeah and for some reason and I'm not really sure what the exact moment was like learning to swim I just suddenly stopped doing wits and just sort of swam out and mm. and uh Within about three days, I'd written it. Wow. That's, that, I really recognise that sense of frustration and the sense of release. Mm. The, uh, did, you, we, did you write it knowing that you were... I mean, I imagine it's... Un, were there differences between what that was and the shorts and the other plays? And were you aware that you were writing something that you'd not written, the like of which you'd not written before? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think I was. I think I, I actually had... Um, I, I, if there's one thing that sort of characterises certain moments in, in my playwriting career, yeah. it's that I do... I make really broad gestures that perhaps some people would think are so corny that they wouldn't even dream of, of doing them out of embarrassment. And this was to go to the countryside and write a big play and bring it back to London and put it on at the Royal Court and have it knock the lights out. That was my plan. <laughs> that was your plan? That was my plan going in. It was like, that's what I'm going to do. Because I'd come here, I'd worked as an usher here, and I'd seen Death and the Maiden, yeah. um, which was the only play I'd ever seen. No, I saw Timberlake, Wurt and Baker's um, Three Birds Alighting on a right. Field. Yeah. And um, those are the two plays I'd seen. And I thought, I bet I could do, I bet I could get one on there, you know? <laughs> It's just terrible, terrible. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's thought, like the Cambridge interview in a way, isn't it? And my yeah. friend Nicky Schindler had been working here, uh, who runs Red. You, yeah, you know, Nikki. yeah. And yeah. she'd been working here and thinking that in the, the literary department or something. Yeah. And she said, mate, everything that comes in is like, you know, they, they haven't put on a play that's come in through the door, yeah. not from an agent, yeah. in their entire history. Right. But they get like, you know, 50, 60 a week. So they said, you know, um, you've got an agent, write one, write one and give it in, yeah. you know, and we'll see what happens. And so, it, But it was a year later that I finished it. The, um, what are your memories months. of the production of it? Oh, God, it was, it was uh, I mean, it, the whole thing was, I was conscious of it being dreamlike at the actual time <laughs> that it was happening. It was one yeah. of those weird experiences <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. where, uh, you know, it was a boiling hot summer, 1995. Yeah. And... Absolutely, I was. Li- I moved from. You no, know, I, I was. What one day I'm. I'm in that little flat, and and Tom and I had spent the the winter playing the, <laughs> Who wants to be a millionaire machine in the pub in order to win electricity to put in the meter, you know, so that we could, <laughs> so that we could actually charge up the Olivetti and I could write. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly I'd won the George Devine Award, and it was like five grand. Yeah. Which you is know. a significant amount of money, yeah. and yeah. you know, I remember playing pool in that same pub like that summer yeah. with a check for five grand in my back pocket, and it just felt like you know. And then <laughs> I, I used the money. I, I I rented a 
a flat on Dean Street and I lived on Dean Street for the next three years in Soho. <laughs> Um, and just started this sort of like bit of a mad adventure where it was just the absolute opposite. It was, you know, it was it was, it was living, you know, right in the centre of town, collecting loads of awards. <laughs> you know, it was it was, cra- it was crazy. It was yeah. really crazy. Yeah, and they're kind of self perpetuating those moments. Because, you know, w- once you're acknowledged, then everybody acknowledges you, and it, 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 it's extraordinary. I think so. Yeah. I think, what, what again, what, what always surprises me about this, though, is on the one hand, these are sort of fairly brazen moves, and on the other hand, like most playwrights, I, I found myself to be incredibly brittle when it came down to it. Because, like, once I lost... I ended up immediately after Mojo losing contact with the Royal Court. Um, How did that happen? S- specifically because the BBC wanted to make a film of it. Right. And Ian Rickson, who directed the, the play, wanted to, to direct the film of it. Okay. In retrospect, quite naturally. Yep. But I wanted to direct the film of it. Okay. Also, in retrospect, quite naturally. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I remember we sat outside here and we had a disagreement about it. And that was the last time we spoke for five years. Wow. And so the entire time Ian was running the, the, the court, yeah. we never spoke. And I didn't know anyone else in any other theatre at all and I right. didn't for some reason have the sort of the the somewhere between the brains or the courage to just go to someone else and restart the whole thing plus that coincided with me suddenly getting into film right and so the next sort of five years mm. were me making a couple of films and yeah. writing several films yeah. and, and just moving into that world and completely forgetting why I got into this in the yeah. First place. When I say the first place, I'd add the caveat that I'd, you know, on TV I'd watched ten thousand movies before I'd seen that one pantomime. Right. You know, but it felt to me like the theatre. Um, I forgot what the theatre was for that time. Right. I forgot what it was. The um, what did the film world give you? What was that like to work in? It's a world I've always been n- n- fucking nervous about. And never gone into. I'm fascinated what your experience of it was. Will you do me a favour <laughs> and, and, and never do so? <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be that would be my uh, that would be my advice. I mean, I, I feel that I was really excited going into that world, and a lot of it has been and still is very exciting. Uh, from a writer's point of view. Mm. Imagine the absolute opposite of your experience when you do a play at the wrong court and how you feel about it and how other people feel about it and how you get listened to yeah. and how you get treated. Yeah. Imagine the absolute opposite <laughs> yeah. of that. In every level. In every it? single yeah. way. I mean, I've, I've recently likened it to... like what Writing for, for uh, film is like being a, a sperm donor. You know, they, they they absolutely need you. They yeah. they can't do it without you. Yeah. Um, but once you've done your thing, they never want to see you again. And don't come to the birthdays. <laughs> you know, that's weird if you show up at yeah. the birthday. You won't be invited yeah. along. Yeah. Do it in a room on your own. Do it in a room on your own. <laughs> exactly. And when you finish, leave. And, and as you leave, they sort of look at you like, "What kind of sick bastard <laughs> does that for a living?" <laughs> When you talk about um, uh, your time at Cam, uh, sorry, at Camden, you're, when you talk about your time in Cambridge and talk about the etc., and then you talk about the yeah. kind of euphoria of Mojo and the plays you wrote in between that, 
um, what I get from you is an amazing sense of the joy of the collaboration of putting on a play. You know, ca- from the first meeting of casting, cast, you know, not casting Rachel Weiss yeah. to working with Paul Ritter and in the Camden, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've I've chosen not to write novels, and I've chosen, or I, or I don't write novels, mm. and you know, so that means these things are going to have to be put on. There's a, there's a reason why I want everyone involved in it. It's why I want it to be a. Yeah. It's one of my problems with film, which is that as a social occasion, film never happens. Yeah, right. You know, as, as the, when, when does it ha- when does a film happen? When you shoot it, when you edit it. Right, great. You know, when yeah. a film when it goes on, everyone's off doing something else. But after a play, everyone's got to walk out the back of the. Of the theatre, yeah. and find somewhere to go to eat. You know, it's it's like it's yeah. alive and yeah. it's it's present. I mean, I could talk all day about the differences between the two, the two mm. e- experiences and what I think of. You know, why I think a theatre is both uh, um, more essentially a hundred times more vital mm. for me than the cinema, but also a hundred times more likely to let you down. Yeah, yeah, because the investment's just so much. You know, it's just it's just so much higher, I think, yeah. for the audience. Yeah, you're actually there. Go on, because I think that's really clear. But I'm... if you you're, you're being asked something completely different, yeah, and you can demonstrate it with like this, which is that you know, if you went to see a matinee of a film and you walked in the, the into the dark and you were the only person in there, look great. You can spread out. Yeah, great. It's brilliant. Just focus on it. There's no one over there annoying you. Yeah. But if like you did the same thing in the matinee of a play, and the light, you know, the lights went down and the curtains went up, and you're just sat there on your own, it's instantly excruciating. <laughs> yeah. The um, what brought you back to the court? Uh, I started talking to Ian again, mm. and uh, realised how much I'd missed it. I came here and um, started writing the Night Heron. Yeah. Yeah, and, how did that, that feel? Because I love the Night Heron. I think it's an extraordinary you. play. Well, it, it felt like a, it felt like like I'd been uh, to use Harold Pinter's phrase. It felt like I'd been banished from myself for those oh. years, and I wasn't aware of it. Mm. Wasn't aware quite how much I missed it, and how much it was a decision based on fear, right? And I think misunderstanding as much as anything. Fear of just just fear of of trying to. My ideas for a second play were just just awful you know and and so I didn't write them and I'm glad that in many ways that they didn't didn't happen and having had a success like Mojo as your first although not your as your 12th play as your kind of first proper play there's a burden to that level of success I think absolutely there was I think that it it didn't just you know it wasn't like oh that was okay you know it it made a a, it made a sort of a a big splash at the time yeah Albeit it never went to the West End in in its first it iteration, and it never went. We went to the Atlantic. Right. Neil did it at the Atlantic. Yeah. Neil Pepe. Yeah. But it never went to the West End, and it's never been on Broadway. Oh my gosh, I was wrong about that. I saw it. I saw mm. Danny Mays. Oh well, he did it. Dan, yeah, well, Danny did it in 2013. Yeah. In the reincarnation. Yeah. Um, uh, I could talk to you about the Night Hone at length. I could talk to you about uh, Winterling as well, which I, I thought was really, really beautiful and parlor song. But um, I'd, we'd be talking for hours, and that wouldn't be fair on anybody. When I was here in the Young Writers Program, like 2002, 2003, I remember there was a call round to all the staff 
to see if anybody would come to the site where the Young Rights yeah. Programme was based and do a reading of a Jez Bottomworth yeah. play. Because yeah. he'd written this fucking play yeah. that had like a million people. That's right, it. that's right. And it was a play about rural England yeah. and there were kind of 4,000 people in it yeah. and we just needed people. Yeah. The uh, This was the start of Jerusalem, yeah? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. When, how long were you working on that play intellectually for before you wrote what you might consider to be a first draft? So I wrote that first draft of it uh, in about two months in 2003. Yeah. And from the day after that, <laughs> I literally put it in the bin outside this theatre. As we walked oh. out, I had my copy of it rolled up and I just chucked it in the bin. It had been one of the most, ex it had been the single most excruciating uh, professional experience of my life, just the, the read through of it, because it was just not in any way, to my ears, a play. And I thought, somewhere down the line, you've forgotten what one even is. And Everyone else in the room seemed to think it was all right. And they had got a bit bored in the second half, <laughs> you know, but it didn't seem to matter that it wasn't like, you know, we'd got through it and it had all these people and it was going to, but to me it was just, it was just, I, I've never, I will never forget the experience. And I thought I'm never going near that idea ever again. That was a, that was a dreadful, dreadful mistake. And also you bit off more than you could chew with the, just the size of the, the, the adventure. Yeah. And so it wasn't until um, 2007, I think, yeah. when I realised that, that somehow Mark Rylance had got hold of a copy of it. <laughs> I imagine Ian sent Spends it Spends a lot of time yeah. in the bins around here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> <He's> always... <laughs> Um, I think that Ian, had, Ian, Ian sent it to him, I think. And, and, right. so, and he saw something in the character. And... What was weird was was even when we were rehearsing what I eventually wrote, he would often refer back to this first draft, and every single time it was like someone sticking a knife in my eye. I was like, no, 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 because I'd, I'd never read it, and, and he was like, but when he does it, no! And I'd never considered the two events to have anything to do with one another. So there was this idea, it was like a place to build a house on which there was no house, that yeah. sat fallow for six years, and then yeah. I met Mark here in the, in the director's um, office mm. with... Um, Ian, I remember that he, he sat there, he'd cycled over, Mark, mm. and he sat there in his cycle shorts and <laughs> kept his cycle helmet on <laughs> throughout the entire <laughs> hour that we were talking to each other without even noticing that it was, it was on. You know, he didn't mean to do it. He just wasn't making it easy for himself when he got out. He just forgot it was there. So unselfconscious. Wow. And uh, we had this incredible wow. conversation, and I left. I've had conversations like that a few times in my career, one with him, yeah. one with Harold Pinter, hmm. where you just come out of it and you feel changed and that something's going to completely change and that I'd met someone who was going um, to massively influence me, I think. And so I went away and it was about a year after that that I started actually writing it because it always takes me ages. Hmm. And the actual writing of the draft of the play was done really quickly, was done in less than a month. Gosh. And wasn't finished by the time we started rehearsals. We, we had our first rehearsal just down there yeah. on June the 1st, 2009, and we had our actual 
read-through of the draft we did 17 days later into a four-week rehearsal period. <laughs> wow. So uh, there's loads I want to ask you about that. But t- so what? Were you, so how were you rehearsing with a with an unfinished script? What, and what we were, were you doing at that time? Were you were you in the room rewriting? I was in the, I was in the room. And, yeah. And I think at the time, I've I've just been producing a film that I'd written with my brother John Henry called mm. Fair Game with Sean Penn in New yeah. York. And I was writing Jerusalem at night. I'd had one of those moments that writers have where you've got to do two things at once. Yeah. You know, and so. I just knew that, that they'd hired the actors and they'd hired the theatre and they'd probably got the Z out of the dusty room upstairs where they keep the letters <laughs> that they put on the front of the theatre. You know. And, um, and uh, Cine Harris so, as well. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I had to I had to finish it and, and so I sort of quite I remember showing up on the first day and knowing it wasn't right, but that mm. so long as I sat there and listened We'd, wow. we'd get there. And I was in a little bit of a state of somewhere between... Sort of, in 2009, I was in a bit of a state of grace and madness, yeah. I would say, that had, that had happened from the, the death of, of Harold mm. Pinter mm. and the death of Anthony Mangella and the death of Sidney Pollock, all within six months of each other. And they were the three people I used to show my work to first. Wow. And so suddenly it was like all bets were off. I didn't know, you know, really what to do other than sort of show it to Ian and and, and right. get cracking. And so that first couple of weeks was was actually joyous because it was like tailor making a suit for the people that you had uh, that you had in the room. Had you done anything like it before, where you'd written specifically yeah. for actors who? Yeah, yeah, at, uni- at university. Right. You know, at university, it was always show up with half a play. Sometimes written in pencil if the, if I couldn't get a typewriter ribbon, and then just right. like make the rest of it up there. And then so it was a process of which I wasn't afraid, remotely afraid. And what I loved about it was neither were the court. Yes. You know, that yeah. Dominic just was like, no, put it on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was wonderful. You know, and it felt like like. Actually, it's a bet Dominic couldn't lose because Ian was directing it. And if it went down the toilet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, with the two plays that you wrote called Jerusalem, one which mm. uh, Mark mm. pilfered, <laughs> pilfered out the bins, and one which has eventually came to define that decade, were you investigating similar things? What was similar about the things? What was intellectual, your, intellectually your investigation? In, I don't think that? anything was really, really similar. I think that, that uh, I didn't know... I didn't know what it was I was trying to do, what it was I was trying to get at. Yeah. And I don't think I knew how... So by the, I have to go back a little bit, which, yeah. was that, which was that after I wrote... The Night Heron. Uh, I moved to the countryside again. Uh, yeah. Exactly ten years after I did it the first time, and uh, I moved to the countryside with Jilly, who was my wife at the time, and yeah. uh, and we bought a dog, and the dog meant that I had to go on these long walks every day. They got longer and longer, and I was using these walks to try and work out what it was I really wanted to say, not knowing what that was. Mm. I'd read a quote from Jackson Pollock, 
where he says, famous quote, where he says, technique is just a means of arriving at a statement. Yeah. You know, le- learning to say things yeah. is what are you going to say? Yeah. And so I felt that very strongly. It was like, yeah, I can, I can, I can you know, write a play like Mojo, which is full of heat, but, yeah. but where's the light? Right. And, and I knew the types of register that gave me just chills. And I wanted to pitch my work into that register. I wanted it to exist on that kind of a front. Now, you, you can't just do that from a standing start. It took about three years of thinking about nothing but that and listening to music and focusing on it in such an obsessive way yeah. that something in me broke through to a, uh, a way of, of receiving the drama that I think was on a completely different level. And so I don't think there's any similarity whatsoever between the two right. versions. Could you talk, could you define what that register is that you're finding in the music or you're finding? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, 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 I remember that you know, David Mamet said, said in that masterclass thing that he did recently that, you know, that truths are simple. They're just not easy, you know. And and <laughs> think he does. I don't know if he gives the example, but you know, the biggest truth, the simplest truth, is yeah. that we're all going to die. Yeah. And it's the hard. You know, it's not easy to take. Mm-hmm. It's famously not easy to <laughs> easy to take. But it's so simple. That is yeah. going. That's an absolute simple truth. Yeah. And I think that the truths arrange themselves, you know, along a sort of a spectrum, really. And and they're really not easy to 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 hear. Yeah. And so, huh. and so I started to try and tune into that. I remember having an image in my head. I was watching one day outside my, my window where I worked. I was watching a, a load of crows on a telegraph wire. And I had this idea that, like, the crows were arranged in order of, of like, um, courage or difficulty. And that to get the crow from this end to fly down wasn't going to be that hard and wasn't going to cost you that much okay and the ones in the middle were kind of going to be a little bit sticky but you'd probably get through it yeah what about that one on the end there yeah yeah how'd you get her down that's rather powerful isn't it and so i knew how it felt when when i was feeling like that when i was writing like that and decided to settle for nothing less and that was really how how i ended up there, I think. Mm. It's really beautiful. Really, really clear. The, um, do you... Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Ian, about Ian Rickson? Because those plays you made together, there's a real power in that collaboration. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'd be doing what I did in the first first place here, he, but you know, without without Ian's initial yeah. uh, excitement about the play. I mean, you were saying at the, the intro that Stephen Jeffries, who was a massive, massive supporter of that play in the mm. early stages, David Lan as well. Who yeah, was, that's who right. Was here, he was. Yeah. I think drama church on that, and and and, uh, but you know, Ian had to get in there and and make make this thing, make this thing work, and he did the most fantastic job. I think that he has done an extraordinary extraordinary job of of every single one of my yeah. plays and uh you know it's it's been 
the 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 collaboration of my my professional playwriting life it's been fantastic i mean you, the, the sensitivity that ian brings to the rehearsal room is just absolutely extraordinary i mean it's like 10 minutes into any rehearsal he's in a register where he's just feeling things that are i think just just kind of super sensitive mm. and he's got a terrific ear and um and he's such a gentleman you know i, mean, I think he's just yeah. just makes the process you know fun and and exciting and, and i always felt uh, you know really supported yeah the uh I've, one of the joys about doing this podcast is now i've spoken to about 25 playwrights right. at length about playwriting and about their lives it's been a real mm. privilege i've very rarely had conversations which felt as though you're somebody was accessing something so spiritual as hearing you talk about writing Jerusalem. I find right. it really profound. And I imagine the extent to which it's antithetical to the world of Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> the world of Bond movies. Yeah. And, and that world must be disorientating or is or do you have a are you able to just park that? Well, I, I learned I learned not to you know I would often talk in these same terms, you know, went to, to people in the theatre and I made the mistake of taking that over there. And um <laughs> And you know the work dried up quite. <laughs> but you know it doesn't sound. They're not. They don't really yeah. buy that at all. It's it's really like when's it going to be in? And you, but you're a great storyteller as well. I mean, there's nothing. There's no moment of indulgence in your writing. You crack that story. It keeps going, man. Yeah, I think that's important to me, and yeah. I can do that. I love doing that in films. Well, I love doing that in screenplays. I mean, I massively, massively enjoy writing screenplays, and, and I'm as sort of naive and enthusiastic about. I sound quite cynical when I'm talking about it now, but when I'm sitting there in front of it, I'm as naive and enthusiastic and like sort of waggy tailed as I could possibly be, uh, in the same way I was when I was you know sort of twenty five, twenty six, and trying to do it. That hasn't really gone away. I think that yeah, get the, the the story of these things, the actual craft of these things, is is uh, is, is a massive massive part of it. The um, how has being a dad affected your writing? I think uh, I think from the from the get go, it was only a galvanising yeah. thing. Uh, just looking at when those births happened, happened, and, mm -hmm. and what I was doing. You know, my, my second child was born two days after Harold died, and that yeah. whole year was was just, you know, was was not even crawling by the, you know, by the time Jerusalem went on and all of that. And I, right. and that, yeah, I did, you know, two plays and a couple of films. Yeah. Uh, I think I try. I tried to listen. I tried to be like them and be like as as alive to the new ideas as much as they were being i can see in i've got a two-year-old called rower uh who just turned two and the delight she's taking in language and just hearing a little thing a phrase and just just Repeating mm. it, I said the other day, you know, Victor, your sister is the noisiest baby I've ever heard. And she kept going, I ever heard, I <laughs> ever heard. And she walked around just, just saying this to herself, I ever heard. Mm. You just see yeah, just like the possibilities of this new tool that she had that yeah. she could use yeah. and does use. And yeah. things, you know, yeah. If there's a loud noise in the street. Yeah. <laughs> I ever heard. <laughs> That's all you get. I'd, I'd love to talk uh, to you about Harold Pinter as well, just because yes. you've returned to him several times. Did you meet him in making 
Mojo. What? Yeah, I, he he was in the film. He yeah. Played, yeah, and so I directed him in that, and then we lost touch for a bit, and we made we we got back in touch around the time that I'm talking about. Uh, mm. Around the time that I got the dog, around the time that I started mm. going on the long walks, yeah. I got in touch with Harold again. And the first thing he asked me is, where have you been? You know, <laughs> and, and I said, um, said, you know, it's not that easy to phone up. <laughs> you know, can Harold come out to play? You know, yeah. it's not easy. Yeah. And he, he acknowledged that. But then we started having these, these uh, longer and longer lunches. Right. Uh, you know, Ascenso and uh, uh, the Caprice. And, mm. and I found them, uh, because of the time that it happened, it was absolutely like the missing bit of ingredient. It was like I was building a spaceship and that was the fuel in the tank right. was his support, yeah, his complete support. And things he said to me about writing and things he said to me about my writing that I carried away with me and made all the difference. The, uh, we need those mentors, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's absolutely, in, in my case, it's been completely essential. Yeah. Because, like I say, there is a, there's this kind of a bullish confidence at times, but there's also a lot of brittleness yeah. to, to, and a, a lot of kind of like self-doubt, which, which uh, just finds its way in and inevitably does if you're going to write as few plays as I do. Right. Why do you think you write so few plays? Well, <laughs> I think there's two reasons. Yeah. One is that nowadays uh, I like to wait a very long time after having an idea for a play right. before I do anything about it. Like anything? Do you make notes? Are you a note taker? Or, or I may, I don't really know. Right. I, I figure that if it sits with me and if it lives with me and keeps yeah. bothering me, then it will be worthwhile. Yeah. And I like to wait around about ten to fifteen years. And and it, I figure if I do that yeah. and it's still interesting to yes. me, then there's every chance it will still be interesting in another 10 to 15 years yeah, to me and perhaps other people. Yeah. So there's kind of like a grade of idea that I think if it... if it Keith Richards said this brilliant thing on that um, uh, Under the Influence documentary where he said he's very lucky because the things that he loves, with the exception of people... He said the things that he loves, he knows are going to be there when he wakes up in the morning tomorrow. Mm. You know, <laughs> they're not going to go away. And he said it means he goes to bed happy, thinking it's all going to be there in the morning. It's a lovely idea, yeah. and I think that I've had all sorts of ideas for things which are very uh, seem very apposite and yeah. seem very sort of fizzy and exciting, and like will give you that kind of oh that could really work. Yeah, and then I wait on it and wait on it, and they go away. Right, and I only I only write the ones that uh, that stick that with me and, and and keep haunting me. Yeah. So what's a working day like for you? Oh God, Simon. <laughs> um, I don't have one. Right. That's all I could say about it. Is yeah. I don't have a working day, yeah. and I never have. Yeah. Um, I have. I have. I have deadlines and right. that's all that, that that's the only way I can get myself to do it and yeah. and now with four children increasingly yeah. that's the only way I can find the time to, to to do it as I was saying when I came in this morning you know, I haven't had any sleep tonight last night because right. I was up all night writing the last episode of of the second series of Britannia Man. and that's a working day yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the uh 
we're so close to running out of time and I'm heartbroken because there's so many things I want to ask you but I'd love to talk to you about Furryman because I saw it yeah. I saw a preview with you and came out and it, yeah. it you know, I was embarrassed by the extent of which my my mind blown state was so bloody legible <laughs> <laughs> well it was deeply appreciated the um, how did the writing of Ferryman compare where did that uh, how did that process compare to the writing of, 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 say, Jerusalem or The River or the other plays? How was that particular? Well, I'd wanted to write something set at harvest time for about 15 years. Right, great. And I'd, I'd wanted to write something about vanishing within relationships for about 10 years. Right. And I then discovered that my partner, Laura Donnelly's family, had this personal history with the, with the disappeared, mm. namely that her uncle had been one of them, was the first one... Uh, exhumed mm. and wow. when she told me the story of that uh, I thought that there could you know, a, a play really starts to work in my head when something within me that I kind of don't want to admit attaches to something outside of me that is like kind of like a, 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 a metaphor for that and the whole thing just starts to spin and attract yeah. like has its own gravitational pull and then by yeah. the time you write it the symbolism and the dialogue and the characters are all part of the same kind of soup mm. you couldn't say which bit of it was stew and which wasn't it's all <laughs> stew at yeah. that point point. Yeah. and so the, the real catalyst for that was uh, visiting um, Belfast on the day of two of the funerals of the disappeared when they were when they were found in late 2002 and 15, and uh, one of the boys was 16 years old when he had been when he had been murdered by the IRA and vanished away, and and uh, and the, the, his contemporaries were all in the cathedral and they were in their 60s, and just this Gosh. thing of having these 60-year-old men with their grandchildren running around when a coffin was brought in of a soon-to-be 17-year-old boy who'd been murdered in 1971, uh, just that sheer discrepancy. Uh, really haunted me. Mm. The degree to which it haunted me is demonstrated by the fact that I wrote the play anyway, despite the fact that it was the last thing on earth I wanted to do, namely write a play about the troubles set in Northern Ireland, being an Englishman. Yeah, That struck me as a really stupid idea. <laughs> and so I fought it and fought it and fought it until I couldn't fight it any yeah. longer and then I gave into it. Yeah. Just didn't want to do it, right? The uh, and and I think I've I've read you speak about the critical response to the representation of our Irishness in that mm. play, and I think you're very persuasive. I, I mean, in I, I I don't need to defend mm. <laughs> defend you to yeah. yourself, <laughs> but the play seems to come from somewhere slightly. It's not a play about the troubles, is it? It's a play about the kind of ghosts that live with our grief and our regrets yeah, and I mean, the things we lose. The bit of Jerusalem that I'm interested in has nothing to do with England, really. Right. You know, and the bit of this doesn't really have anything to do with with the, the travels. You know, I wasn't there, just like I wasn't in, in Soho in 1958. Yeah. You know, I don't choose these these subjects. And I think that writers, you know, to ring fence where a writer can or can't uh, go yeah. means that you don't have the Rolling Stones, you know. Yeah. You don't have half of Shakespeare's plays, you know, mm. the Scottish play isn't, you know. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you don't have, yeah. you, you don't have, you know, just to choose a, an Irish writer, you don't have Beckett who wrote in French. Right. You, know, who, who, you don't have translations, which yeah, was precise, set several precise, hundred years before. Precisely, yeah. precisely. And so I think that the only issue 
with this play. It wasn't that, that it's like, oh, did he get that right, did he get that right? It's not that at all. It's because I'm English. Right. It's that simple. Yeah. That if you'd been American or French yeah, yeah, so or... Yeah, wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the success of, of your work uh, is inspiring, galvanising. How have you dealt with it? Do you enjoy success? Because the way you talk about that, you know, living on 20 quid a day and wandering around London <laughs> or hanging out with your mates at the etc. Yeah. There's <laughs> something quite compelling about that. I think so. I think yeah. there is. And, I, I, you know, I, I think I, I do enjoy it. Yeah. I don't... Uh, in the theatre, I don't require it. I think that uh, one of the things about working in film as well, uh, what it's meant is that I don't have pressure for my place to make more than 20 quid right and right. that has kept it the way that it is you yeah, know i great. don't have to i can see so many playwrights you know, i can see david mamma sitting there with his broadway producer going write a play about harvey weinstein mm. you know and it's like all right then you know that that yeah. might work after seven or eight absolute turkeys in a row because yeah. he needs to pitch them onto that broadway stage you yeah. know the same thing happens to arthur miller you know it's like yeah. what if the play doesn't have to make 20 dollars? you know what if it can just be itself yeah and that's this provided me with that opportunity to do it and so the fact that they've been successful i think has something to do with mm. the fact that they're not designed to be great i think that's really clear that's really really clear um i want to ask you two more questions if that's all right or three more questions if we've got time if that's all right with yes. you yeah i do want to uh talk to you about how your gender has affected your writing is something which I think is as important to talk to male writers about mm. as it is to female writers yeah it's a really interesting question do you feel yourself a masculine writer a male writer or do you feel uh, do you, are you drawn to reading male readers I mean you talked about Pinter or Beckett. so my um, my journey as a writer has gone mm. from uh, you know, writing a play that had six men in it you know to, to, to writing a writing the ferryman where you know, it's got, I think, about a dozen female characters. Yeah. Three of the actresses were nominated for Olivier Awards for their for their roles. Mm. It's probably the proudest moment of you know, of, of my life as a writer because you want to be able to, to 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 write. You want to be able to understand the whole truth and the lies of what it is that you're trying to say. My life has changed completely since I began writing. Uh, you know, I have four daughters mm. um, it, it is a rare day that I see a man mm. <laughs> you know I, just, I can go <laughs> days without seeing a man I, I, you know if someone delivers a pizza to the door and it's a man I try and hold the conversation <laughs> I just get, never get to see any men ever making this particularly <laughs> fun um, one of the one of the things that's happened in that is that the, you know, I've just started to, to well, a long time ago, started to just listen and see how it is uh, women talk to one another and what it is that they mm. require and miss and their losses. And I think it does relate to having young daughters. It sort of is way more compelling to me than anything that's going on with, with any men right. at the moment, any yeah. men that I know. It just yeah. feels like... It feels like a level of... And this is a really male perspective, but it's like it's a level of, of being that I find hugely dramatic. Hmm. I find it really dramatic the idea, for instance, that that 
the time in which you're fertile is is finite. You know, it's like being a wine grower right. who's only got a certain number of right. seasons. You know, watch yeah. someone like Ronnie Wood walking around with his new twins and he's 71 years old. You know, yeah. That's a massive difference between between the, the, the sexes. I just don't yeah. think it's enough, you know, uh, written in, uh, about yeah. it. Yeah. I think I... St- you know, I'm writing a play, I've begun a play now at the moment, which is mostly female characters and it's a big cast. And I did it without thinking, you know, it's just those of the... I once said, and I think it rings true, that, that, you know, that there's... When you have an idea for a play in the very first instance, when it starts to really work on you and you've got to do something about it, it's like a doorbell rings and you go and answer it and there's either the six blokes from Mojo standing there <laughs> and they say, can we come in? <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, there's 12 women and, mm. you know, four men and a dog and a goose and a, you know, whatever it is, four babies. And so, <laughs> and then you decide whether or not to let them in and I think that will speak totally towards what your environment has been, yeah. what's troubling you, yeah. what you can't, yeah. uh, what you can't get past. Yeah. Yeah, the um, do you um, when you when you when you think about those people who've been at your door, <laughs> those different congregations mm. and constellations, do you notice things in common with your plays? Do you notice like obsessions you return to? You've been twenty five years now writing for stage professionally. Do you, are you drawn back to certain groups who you do let in? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that you could. You know, there are playwrights who you could you could. You know, like a football team, you could buy a player out of one player and, and sell it to another player, and you wouldn't really notice that mm. person walking entering into that player out of this player. I think, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think with me, like you couldn't really walk one actor, one, one character from one player no. to another. Yeah, uh, and I sort of like that. I like that they're sort of these independent worlds, and the next play doesn't know anything about the last at right. all. It right. doesn't owe it anything. Uh, and I don't think I've I've gone over the same ground except perhaps just the sense that that I'm completely haunted and uh, obsessed to an almost pathological degree with the past yeah it's an excavate is that is that I kind of want to ask you what theatre's for for you and I wonder if it's related to that what is the, do you have a, do you have an idea of what theatre's for for you uh I, th- I think it's it's for it's for finally being able to make a connection with the world on a level that that seems to make sense to me and that I, that I welcome. Mm. It seems to be unavoidable. Mm. It's not necessarily been a been a choice to. St- it was a choice to go into it because it seemed like such a, a compelling mm. arena to be in. But to but to stay in it hasn't really been a choice. It's mm. been something that I just now need to do. And I, th- I think I take it incredibly seriously. But I don't really know anyone that works in it. You know, I, <laughs> I kind of I've kept myself at one remove mm. from the machinery of it. Yeah. And as such, it's remained in my head as an imaginary thing. You know, I, I've, I've probably spent almost as much time in the Royal Court as it's taken to do my plays as it has. You know, that, that's, I've come and seen shows here, yeah. but I don't hang out around theatres. And, yeah. and although I adore, adore, adore um, working with actors and consider them to be absolute, like, 
um, co-conspirators. I don't have lots of friends who work in the mm. in the theatre, so it's it's absolutely essential for me as a kind of a dream idea, and I've mm. tried as hard as I can to keep it as that. Cheers, Butterworth. Thank you very, very much. Cheers, thank you. Points and questions from Anushka. Um, just, yeah, feel like you can just answer them like quickly, like sure. sound bites. Um, what did I want to ask first? Oh yeah, very quickly, without too much detail, did uh, teacher Don Johns ever come and see any of your plays? Don Jones. Jones. Uh, uh, yes, he did. He came to see Mojo at the, at the Royal Court. What a beautiful thing. He loved it. Excellent. Good lad. Um, quick answer to this. In the three years where you're obsessive about just focusing on Jerusalem and listening to stuff, does that mean you did no other writing? Oh, no, I, I did lots of other writing. And it wasn't just Jerusalem. I wasn't planning to write Jerusalem at that point. It was just like, how do you Focus. how do you gear this up into that whole other register that mm. I was talking about? Uh, you're very patient because of this 10 to 15 year mm. theory. What I wondered is, when you're over 70, will you relax the rules on that? <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> One of the things about my obsession with the past means that I can't see into next week. <laughs> Very good. Um, and then, uh, just my final question, which if it's too personal, we can just cut. I just wondered, after you said the three people who you used to read your plays first are no longer around, who, who are the people who read them now? Uh, there isn't really anybody. Mm. I kind of sent, you know, I, I, I would se send my plays to... Uh, you know, to Ian first. That that was who I'd send my send my plays to. Um, and there wasn't really, you know, it's like I sort of lost the sounding board. And it was an interesting moment because it felt like simultaneous. And the experience of it was one of complete bereavement, if there's such a word. Yeah, for the bereavement. Three, yeah. Being completely sort of marooned and lost. Yeah. But the actual, you know, the un indisputable fact is that it was a freedom. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre, presented by me, Simon Stevens, produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.